Chapter 1 of Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy starts like this. Recently, a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a parable for human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, although plenty are doing that, but most of us as individuals and as a world society as a whole live at high speed and often have no clue whether we're flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we're haunted by the strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it's unknown or irrelevant. When flying a plane, pretty important to know which way's up and which way's down. The truth of how you're flying matters. When living life, the truth about knowing what's important, what's worth putting your time and energy to, it actually, it actually matters. Now, very few might actually walk around day to day thinking about the meaning of life. Uh, maybe you think that that's relegated to people like our own Dr. Wasserman, the pro- philosophy professor, or maybe guys like James who are deep thinkers, or maybe certain pastors or theologians. But for most people, you probably, heck, I don't, every day, right, walk around thinking, what is the meaning of life? But whether or not you consciously think about the meaning of life or not, you absolutely live as though you believe something. You, the way you live reveals the truth about life that you, you hold to. And for the first three chapters in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has been telling us what is true about God, what is true about ourselves, and what is true about the church. He's telling us what is true even about those who are separated from Christ. Now, based on the truth that God is our Father, that God chose the church before the foundation of the world and redeemed us in Christ, and and based on the truth that the church is God's inheritance, is seated with Christ above the heavenly places, above the powers of evil, and that we are part of one body, regardless of gender or age or ethnicity or nationality or socioeconomic status, we are one And based on the truth that those who are in Christ are adopted into God's family, forgiven, recreated, given good work to participate in. Based on these truths, Paul begins chapter 4 by telling us to walk accordingly. He uses this verb walk as a way of saying, live into this truth, live into this reality. He says, walk in unity with one another, for example. Not only when it's easy, but being diligent to pursue and to protect the bond of unity. Last week, we, we looked at uh, chapter 4 where Paul says to walk in maturity. In short, he tells us to grow up. He gives certain people to the church as gifts to help us grow up. And this evening, we're going to hear how Paul tells us to walk in the truth. I want to ask you to stand as we read Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, 
have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard, have you heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and, and that you put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Lord, as we strive to have your word take root in our hearts, we confess that our hearts are so easily duped. In fact, we often prefer the lie over the truth. It seems more seductive. It seems easier. I pray, Lord, that you would confront us with the reality of the way we're living, of the good life, the true life you call us to live into. And we pray for the miracle of your Spirit to help us to actually live into that life. Amen. You may be seated. Pretty much up to this point in the letter of, of Ephesians, Paul has been talking about things positively. He's been telling us things like who we really are and who God really is. Um, even in the beginning of chapter 4, he calls us to walk in unity and to grow up. So he, it's like he, he gives us a vision of the life we could have and says... Live into it. It's, it's all positive. It's stuff to do. Or it's, it's a reminder of who we really are. But here we see him change his tack for a moment when he calls the Ephesians to stop walking in a certain way. He calls them to stop walking as the Gentiles walk. Now, it's kind of obvious, but when you want to start something new in your life, maybe a, a new way of living or a new habit, you have to, by nature, stop doing something else. Uh, life is kind of like a gas in a 24-hour time capsule. And whether you, even if you slept all day, as long as you're not dead, you will fill a 24-hour period doing something, even if it's just breathing. So in order to make a change, you have to stop doing something in order to start something else. So I've been trying to ride my bike more for exercise, and by nature, I have to stop driving my car more to do that. And I have to start, uh, I have to stop making my appointments so close together so it gives me a little extra time to get places because I'm not very fast on my bike yet. See, So you have to give something else up in order to start doing something new. And here, Paul tells the Ephesians to stop walking as the Gentiles walk. Well, why? To put it short, because the Gentiles were walking or living in a way that's not compatible with following Jesus. We've touched on some of this cultural background over the weeks because we've been in the series since January. But let me just set a few, uh, recap a few here. Uh, first of all, the Gentiles here in, this, in, in Ephesus had a fairly low view of human life. Had a fairly low view of creation. Uh, in some of the popular thought, the creation, the physical world was kind of accidental, an afterthought. The body was kind of seen as a trap that you long to escape from uh, when you die. 
Slaves, for example, human beings, but, and, and, and a group of people who made up the majority of the population in the Roman Empire, they were viewed as less than human. They didn't even get their names on their gravestone or receive a proper burial. And in that culture, if you didn't get buried properly, it was very demeaning, um, for, for especially when you consider their thoughts on the afterlife. Children were seen as property. They could be, and frequently were, left out in the wilderness to be exposed to the elements and die. For any reason that the father of the family wanted to. It could be because it was a girl. It could be because it had uh, some kind of defect. It could be a perfectly fine child. They just didn't want more kids. And children were just seen as, as things to let go, to, as property. And in some ancient Greek culture, power was seen as sexually attractive. And in that culture, a woman couldn't have any power. So men would procreate with their wives, but they would do other things with boys and men uh, to satisfy themselves sexually because only men and boys could have power. And so um, ethically and morally, the Greco-Roman culture was messed up. Now, that's not to say nothing good came out of that culture. Uh, after all, some of the best thinking in mathematics and philosophy came from the Greeks. But there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. Right? Um, so how did the Gentiles get this way? Well, Paul says they were walking in the futility of their mind. That word futility means emptiness or without a clear objective. The Bible has a deeper meaning for that word futility. It's often linked with idolatry. So these Gentiles were walking in the futility of their mind, seeking lasting happiness in temporary solutions. Anytime you seek for your happiness outside of God, anytime you put all of your trust or your weight on something or someone outside of God, that's a form of idolatry. So he goes on to say that they were darkened in their understanding. Well, what does that mean? Literally, the Greek word behind that word understanding means disposition. It's Kind of the inner part of your body, your personality. It's the control center. If you're a computer, it'd be your CPU. It's the thing that takes in all of the stimulus. And it's what spits out your automatic response in thought, feeling, and action. Whenever a circumstance comes into your, into your radar screen, it's how you react. So your disposition, or your understanding as it's put here, your disposition is how you automatically react when somebody cuts you off. It's how you automatically react when somebody gives you a compliment. Think about that. It's your disposition. Paul says that the Gentiles walked in the futility of their minds and with a darkened disposition. They're excluded from the life of God because of two related things. First of all, because of their ignorance. Now, that's kind of a bold statement to call these people ignorant, uh, especially a people who gave us so much of the bedrock of mathematics, philosophy, art, democracy, just to name a few. But he isn't talking about intellectual ignorance here. Paul is talking about ignorance in a biblical way, which has to do with knowing God. Remember how we've talked about in the past that to know God isn't just to know about God, it's to be in relationship with Him. So to be ignorant then of God isn't to like, oh, you failed theology class, it's, it's that you don't relate with God. It's a lack of relationship with Him. 
If you know God, you're in relationship with Him and you begin to see the world as He sees it and to care for the things that God cares for. It'll make you a more compassionate person, a more loving person, a more courageous person, a bolder person when we begin uh, to have a relationship with God. But if you're separate from God, if you're ignorant of Him, like, like these Gentiles, you don't know Him. You're ignorant of the relationship, and as a result, you could be flying upside down and, and not even realize it. You lose your grip on reality. So that's the first thing. The second reason that their understanding was darkened is that Paul speaks of the Gentiles being hard of heart. Hard of heart. Literally, the word for hardness here is Porosin, porosin, from which we get our word porous and porous, you know, like uh, that water can go through. Well, that's, that's the technical term that they would use for marble. Like what well, the artisans would make their carvings out of, so porous, hard as marble. It also got brought into the medical world for paralysis and petrification. So when you have stiff joints or when you have paralysis, it's this hardness. The idea is that without God, our heart becomes insensitive to God's voice. And if we are cut off from God, who is the source of life, who gave us life, who tells us the best way to live, then we begin to get numb and dull to what's really real in, in life. Paul continues and says that as a result of becoming hard, these people have become callous or insensitive. And as a result, they've given themselves over to sensuality, the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, three, three quick observations. First, although it appears to list three vices in this sentence, sensuality, impurity, and greediness, the Greek structure is different. It should be translated like this more accurately, I think. Becoming callous, they've abandoned themselves to sensuality, practiced with the continual lust for impurity. That greediness kind of qualifies the impurity. It's, it's, they go after impurity with a lust for more and more and more, like a, I can't get enough. Second, it's interesting to note that when we're cut off from our relationship with God and our heart grows hard and we grow callous, like we stop feeling that relationship with God, what's the result? Seeking sensuality. We are made, you guys, we are made to live, to be filled with joy, and that we're made for that joy to come from God and from His creation and relating to Him, living a life of thanksgiving. And when that's cut off, we are going to seek to feel anything in any way we possibly can. One of the areas of, of research I did in uh, counseling was in post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, you probably know that that comes, uh, it was shell shock in Vietnam and then became PTSD in, in the Gulf Wars. And it's, uh, it's a stress that when you go through such traumatic things, you obsess, you can obsess about these things. And you, you can grow cold and hard and callous from real life. But one of the interesting facts is that a lot of war vets will go to the VFW, for example, and they'll... They'll have a few drinks and they'll start talking about the old battles. And there's a love-hate relationship there. They hate those memories. But when they talk about them in community, it evokes a, a visceral reaction and a, re a release of adrenaline. And even though they're feeling pain and sorrow, they're feeling. Whereas the rest of their day, they can't feel anything. Because of that callousness. And, and when we're cut off from God, see, we're going to seek to feel 
Good, something, anyway. And how does that work out? Well, oftentimes we'll seek, it, we'll seek for those things in ambition. And you know how it is. If, you're, if you, And I've been this way. When you seek accolades and ambition, as soon as you get there, it's not good enough anymore. You need the next thing and the next thing. And you name it. Drugs, alcohol, sex, entertainment. We can entertain. I love entertainment. (laughs) But I can easily see myself slipping into um, zoning out and just not dealing with life, not dealing with God and, um, and just entertaining myself. It happens all the time. Third, that word practice. They gave themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. The word there behind practice is ergasian. The root is ergon, which means work. Like you've heard the term ergonomics before, that comes from that Greek word ergon. So ergonomics is the study of working efficiently, and you're supposed to get your chair right and make your, your keyboard right. Sarah knows. But uh, this is important because if you remember back to chapter 2, Paul told us there in chapter 2 that we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Ergon. To do good work that God prepared in advance that we would walk in that. So, if we're in Christ, we're recreated to walk in the work that God prepared for us. Then we're not to walk as the Gentiles who are so darkened that they walk in the work or the practice of impurity. Now, I ask myself, at least I try to, whenever I'm preparing a sermon, and I hope you ask this question whenever you listen to a sermon. So what? So what? That's an important question. Who cares how the Gentiles live? What does it matter? Well, of course, it matters a little bit because it gives meat and context to what Paul's saying here in his letter. Um, But mostly I think it matters... Because replace the word Gentiles with North Americans, and you pretty much got the same group of people. Right? In fact, every society organized around anything or anyone but God is just as futile in the darkness of our minds, just as hard of heart, and seeking after empty idols. Whether you're in the church or not, like whether you are following Jesus or not, I think we've all kind of bought into a lie. And that is, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We're almost there. We're doing well. Our culture has just a few hiccups here or there. And, you know, every four years, right, there's this big push for the presidential election. And we act as a culture as though, oh, man, if we just get that person into office, they'll straighten everything out. If we just get the economy on track, that will make it all better. We're almost there. Just some smoke and mirrors and we'll be good to go. But that's futile thinking. That's pulling up on the stick when we're flying upside down. We need to grasp the fact, this is not fun to say, but this is reality. We need to grasp the fact that we're dead in our transgressions, that we can't rescue ourselves. We need to go back to Ephesians 2 that says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
And when we read those words, we must come to grips with the fact that God's intervention isn't just like a nice option where we get to say, I'm so glad you did that, God, because now I don't have to do it myself. Now we have to say, we were completely lost and didn't even know we needed rescue until God did that. Because of our encounter with Jesus, our lives are forever changed. That's how Paul puts it. Life like the Gentiles or the North Americans or you name it is not compatible with Jesus through and through. He says, you didn't learn Christ this way if indeed you've heard of... If you've, in, <laughs> I don't want to say that wrong. He says, you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him. Interesting statement. It does not say you have heard of Him. It says, you have heard Him, you have been taught in Him. What does that mean? He must be referring here to some kind of training or school or something. Let me give you a hint. It's not seminary. Okay? By saying, we learned Christ, Paul's talking about the relationship that we have with Jesus. Now you may be thinking, I never learned Christ. I've never heard him. I wasn't taught in him, whatever in him means. But if you're a disciple, you have heard him. And you are being taught by him, in in him. How do we learn Christ? Through prayer. How How do we hear him? Through prayer and obedience. How are we to hear him? Through his word. Listen to the words that Paul has in Romans 10. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? What do preachers preach? Should they preach? The Word. The Word of God. That's how we hear Jesus. Remember last week I talked about how God gives gifts to the church, right? Uh, Those gifts that He was talking about earlier on in this chapter are the gifts of certain people. Apostles and prophets are two of the four he mentioned, and they gave us the scriptures, the account of Jesus and his work in the early church. And he gave some as pastors and teachers, who are what? Ministers of the word. They counsel by the word, and teach and preach by the word. The spirit of the living God transforms us by his word. That's why... Here we're committed to preaching expositorily through Scripture because the last thing you need is a preacher's best advice, especially this preacher's best advice. And that, you know, that's another reason I'm so thankful, for example, for Sarah, for Sarah Matichuk and all you who are serving in children's ministry because you're committed to sharing the Word, not just information about Jesus to our little disciples, but you're, you're committed to sharing a relationship with Jesus. To our children. And that's why I'm thankful for our small group leaders like Ryan Wasserman and, and Matt Thompson and Eric Frazier and Charles Hansen. Because these folks are committed to helping people encounter Christ through His Word. Paul wants us to walk in the truth. And in the 21st verse, he says, The truth is in Jesus. Interesting. It's the only place in Ephesians where Paul uses Jesus' name. He normally refers to Jesus by his title, Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. 
But here, he's making, I think, a special point in saying that the truth is not in just a concept. It's not in a person with the title of Christ. It is in the historical man, God, Jesus, who was born to a woman in the first century, who lived and taught and was crucified and rose from the dead and now reigns and rules. Jesus, the person that we have a relationship with. That's important. Jesus, who is reigning as king. Jesus is truth. The truth is that Jesus is Savior. He forgave us and recreates us. And He's king. He rules now and will one day bring His kingdom in full. And I know, I'm preaching to a mixed crowd. Some of you are following Jesus and have repented. You've been converted. You've been baptized. And some are still considering the implications of all those things. And that's great. But what Paul is saying is that for those of you who have been baptized, you've already put off the new way of life. You've changed your clothes. You've denounced your old life. You died when you went under the water. And you rose and you broke the water in newness of life. A new person, a new creation. Paul now tells those of us who have made that choice to live in the power of Christ. You have a new life now. Dress differently. So I met this pastor's gathering uh, uh, on Wednesday, and it's a group of us that are planning the joint worship gathering that we're doing on, on Memorial Day weekend. So you know, like Doug Bunnell and uh, uh, Sean from over at Hillcrest, and we've got Jeff Flint uh, there from First, First Baptist, and Jeff's in a suit. Now normally at these meetings, we're all, you know, Bellingham pastors. We're in jeans or shorts or whatever, flip-flops. And, and, uh, but, but Jeff's there. He's suited up, man. He's looking good, too. His mother-in-law got him these new suits. I'm kind of jealous. But um, so, you know, at one of the breaks, I'm like, wedding or funeral? He's like, funeral. Uh, <laughs> Because you just know, by the way somebody's dressed, what they're about, what they're going on about. And, and you, you change your clothes based on the situation, based on the reality that you're in, right? You wear clothes appropriate to the occasion. And Paul is saying that the old way of life, the way of life before we were baptized, before we began this trek of following Jesus, that that way of life is in a state of constant decay. Like it's not just neutral. It's getting it'll lead you progressively worse and worse and worse. It's a downward spiral. But he says to put on this new garment, like, uh, like the new creation, God's image is what we're made in. The futility of the human mind broke that image, cracked it, distorted it. Our perception is off. We fly upside down and we don't even know it. But Jesus rescued us. He didn't just die to forgive us. He rose that we might be renewed in spirit and mind. That our very core of who we are might be remade by God. Created in Him in righteousness, in holiness, and in truth. So, what? Again, right? So what? How do, we, how do we live this new life? I mean, I, I'm looking out there and I'm seeing people who, yeah, I know, <laughs> heard this one before. It's supposed to be a new creation. How's that going for you? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's frustrating. How do we experience this new life? How do we hear Jesus and become like him? Well, first of all, let me say this. There's good news in all of this. 
It's all based on what God has already done. The good news is that God has taken the initiative. He's made this possible. Second, more good news, by the way, Jesus does the heavy lifting in this relationship. He gives us the new life and bids us, hey, come and live into it. I'm making this available. Come and, come and follow me. So third, instead of me, you having to go do a bunch of stuff, like God's already done this stuff, we open our lives up to receive what Jesus has died for and risen to give us. There are practices, ways of life that give room and invitation to move, for Jesus to move in us, for Jesus to change us. And they're not new. And I think that's the point. They're time-tested. They're old ways of connecting with Him. And there are so many, I can't even mention them all right now, but I'll mention some of the basics. Here's one. Submitting ourselves to God's Word. If... If this once a week exposure to the word is all you're getting, that's not very much. How is, how is God's, how are you opening yourself up to receive God's word? How do we get to know God? To get to know, we know his story in scripture. We get to, in scripture, we get a window into how he relates to people who he really is, what's really important to him. In scripture, we get to know what the good life really is. If you're like, where do I even begin? I'll tell you. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful picture of the good life. It's the character of Jesus in text. There's prayer. Simply connecting with Jesus, listening to Him, yeah, and lifting up those in our lives to Him. I was telling James earlier, um, I was praying today, and I was thinking about this part of the sermon. It's like, you know, Jesus, I just want to see my world with more compassion. I, would you help me? Picture of a neighbor pops up in my mind. You guys can guess which one. Across the street. Not, not you guys, though. Not you guys. It's a woman who has a daughter who has been in and out of rehab. Sometimes so violent, can't come to the house anymore. Not allowed on the premises. And I knew God just showed me a picture of how hard this day would be for her. And I just got this picture. I'm supposed to go buy her flowers. So went to Hagen, bought flowers. Corey and the girls and I walked them over there. Just, it was like, it's a, I, as soon as she saw us at the gate, she just lost it. And it was so cool, not the reaction and all that stuff, but it was just so cool to have been used by God. Because of what? A simple moment saying, Lord, would you show me what you want me to do? Would you show me how to be more sensitive? It's not because I'm a pastor. Seminary didn't do that for me. It's taking five minutes out of an afternoon. What I'm trying to say is you can do that too. You can, you can hear from God too. And that's what Paul's saying. Put on that new self. And how do we do that? We open ourselves up to the time-tested ways of 
relating to God, His Word, and in prayer. We commit ourselves, here's number three, to a community called the church. In all its imperfections and inadequacy, Jesus loves the church. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus came up to him in the Damascus Road and said, Why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, Why are you persecuting my people? Like it or not, believe it or not, the church is part of Jesus. I mean, man, He loves you. He loves us. And calls us to be committed to one another. Even when it's not easy. We grow when we hang out with the church and we help the church grow. And how do we keep our hearts from being hard and callous to people around us? How are we to really feel and experience things outside of counterfeit methods and escapism? Well, one way is to simply engage. It's to serve. Again, Corey and I were on vacation just last November, and we try and escape like right before the Advent rush, right? Just like, kind of get a breather, no kids. And the last couple of years we've gone to Seattle. We just get like Priceline Hotel, and we just do nothing but read books and stuff. So it's pretty cool. But anyway, so we go have breakfast on Capitol Hill, right by you know where Virginia Mason is, right by all those hospitals. And we heard good things about this breakfast joint. So we're sitting down enjoying our breakfast and didn't realize, like all of a sudden there was a lull in our conversation. I started listening to these guys behind me, a couple hospital chaplains having a deep conversation. And then there was a family over here. It looked like uh, an elderly woman and maybe her son. And just the looks on their face, I... I was guessing, oh, her husband's probably in that hospital. And then you saw uh, a young kid with his parents and two siblings, shaved head, um, thinking cancer. You know, and you just start to see, okay, I'm here enjoying this breakfast for a weekend, but there's a life going on around me. And I know I'm a little bit weird, um, but I like, I, I don't like it when you're in the hospital, but I do like to go visit I like that aspect of, of this because it forces me into real situations. I love to be there when babies are born and get to pray with them. And I like the privilege of being there and helping people in the worst of times as well. Because I need that. I need to be around real things that aren't movies, that aren't favorite songs, that aren't easy because when you and I are around real people and real things, people who are different than us, people who make us feel uncomfortable in Jesus' name when we do those things, I'm not romanticizing that, by the way. Like, yeah, you want some reality? Go down. Volunteer at the mission. Go down there with Wayne and, and Jeannie one time and lead worship on a Friday. Or go to the jail. Ask Frank if you can, well, you have to do a bunch of background stuff. There's real things going on. Right around us. And those will, when we engage in mission, it will make us in touch with feelings, with God's feelings. We'll begin to, uh, to see things through His eyes. And finally, I don't mean to paint a bad picture about feelings, like it's not all hard. There's, there's this thing called joy. And I, I think I mentioned last week, I've, my joy meter has just been a little down, and I was talking to some people about how proud I am of Sophia lately, like her playing soccer. And I just had so much joy watching her play soccer and kind of take out this other kid. And 
And I had so much joy today, like Corey and the girls went bike riding, and Sophia rode seven miles. I know I'm boasting about my kid, but it's like, that's awesome. I mean, it's so, those little things. In C.S. Lewis's famous screw tape letters, um, in one of the chapters, the apprentice demons get, gets chewed out by his mentor, Uncle Screwtape, um, because they're trying to take this young Christian guy, who they call the patient, and they're trying to warp him from loving God. And he, this is what the mentor says to the young demon. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed. Because he enjoyed it! and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant to see the danger of this? The characteristic of pain and pleasure is that they're both unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, Give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. So one of my disciplines lately has been to read a book for pleasure. So at nighttime now, I'm just reading some novels that I've wanted to, always wanted to read. Not so that I can tell you that I'm reading them. Because they're fun. They probably have no bearing on these sermons whatsoever. Play. Have fun. Enjoy friends. And when we do those things with faithfulness in our hearts to God, we do them in Christ. We become more real. And when we really live, we really have life, abundant and eternal life in Christ. Thanks be to God who makes it possible for us to walk in truth. Lord, I just said my prayer, I think. Thanks be to you who makes it possible for us to actually not just know truth, but to experience it. And not, not just to experience it in fleeting ways, but because of your graciousness and the power of your Spirit, you help us to walk into truth, into the process of becoming less and less like shadows and more and more substantive and more and more real people made in the image of you, living God. Amen.